in Alice in Wonderland, there's a, there's a scene where Alice is walking down the road and she comes to a fork in the road and uh, she's trying to decide which way to go and there's a cat, a Cheshire cat that appears up in a tree. And Alice asks the cat, which way should I go? And the cat says, well, that depends. Where do you want to get to? She said, well, I don't, I don't really know. And so the cat said, well, then it doesn't matter which road you take. Um, I never actually read Alice in Wonderland. I tried two or three times and didn't make it very far. But, but I grew up hearing that story because when I was a little kid, my dad was still in school. And when he was working on his doctoral dissertation, he had a cartoon of that scene up on his wall. And he used that to help remind him that he needed to keep thinking about where he was trying to get to on his dissertation because he'd wander this way and that way. And that's really true of anything we accomplish in life, isn't it? We need to be sure we know where are we going because if we don't have a target, we're probably not going to hit it. Um, Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about guiding people towards maturity. Now, specifically, this is going to be pointed towards guiding children towards maturity. It's kind of aimed towards parents, grandparents, whoever has anything to do with little kids. How do we guide little children towards maturity? Um, But I want to give a warning here. If your temptation is just to tune me out because, well, you're old and you don't have any kids anymore, you're done with that. Or if you're a kid yourself and you don't have any kids... um, Don't tune me out because when you stop and think about it, as we're going to see, when we're talking about guiding people towards maturity, that that really applies in all of our relationships, whether it's our relationships as adults with children or with other adults, with friends at church, with co-workers, believers and unbelievers, um, with relatives at family reunions, even our crazy old uncle so-and-so that people have a hard time getting along with, anytime we're interacting with anybody, how can we interact with them in a way that might help guide them towards maturity? So um, I think that this outline that you have, um, I, I won't even reference the chart on the back. That'll look familiar. Some of you have seen that before. But on the outline, um, there are four, you can see that there are four steps that I'm going to take. Full disclosure, I actually gave this same sermon here six years ago. About a month ago, Carrie was digging out some CDs, and the CD of this sermon was there. And I listened to it, and I didn't remember having given it, so I'm pretty sure any of you that were here won't remember either. Um, But it's something important that we can always be helped with. When I did this sermon six years ago, Carrie and I were empty nesters and enjoying it. Now we're grandparents with seven grandchildren, very involved with our kids and grandkids, and so we've had occasion to think about this a lot. But also, I'd like you to consider this same outline by changing very few words. You could use this exact same outline uh, if I were up here preaching about counseling, or if I were up here preaching about discipling, or... uh, Even if I were preaching about just my own personal walk with the Lord, we would still have these same points. So what I'd like to suggest is that while you may not actively be raising children, I think everything we're going to talk about here will apply. 
hopefully that will be more apparent as we go on. What we're going to do, as you can see, we're going to do four steps here. The first thing we're going to do is talk about the goal. Where are we going? What is maturity from God's point of view? When God talks about people becoming mature, what does He mean by that? Secondly, we're going to talk about the starting point. Where are we starting from? What is it about little children that are not mature that they've got to grow to become mature? What constitutes immaturity in either children or grown-ups who are immature? What is it about them that's immature? You know, if you wanting to wanting to get directions to go somewhere and you get on MapQuest, it's going to ask you two questions, isn't it? Where do you want to go? And where are you starting from? That's the only way you can get directions to where you want to go. And we want to be sure that we understand from God's perspective where we're starting and where we're going. Then we can talk about the process. What are some of the things that Scripture says that we can do to help children mature and become mature men and women? Then finally, we're going to look at a couple of things that the Scripture points out and warns us about that if we're trying to help people uh, grow to maturity, what are some errors that we need to be careful to avoid that might actually make matters worse? So let's start with maturity. Let's talk about the goal. We're wanting to help children grow towards maturity. What is maturity from God's perspective? Now, if you look on your outline, I've got a couple of expressions up there that I just, I kind of came up these myself, and I, I think I'm as the same thing, responsible freedom or wise independence. What do I mean by that? I'm going to read a verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 11 that's kind of a summary statement for one of the main themes in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's really interesting that jumps out at me. Uh The writer says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Stop and think about that a minute. What is the Lord saying? He's saying, What would you like to do? Go do it. Yet, know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Now I'm going to expand on this for a moment. Often, especially unbelievers in our culture, tend to think of Christianity as just a bunch of rules that have you trapped so that you can't have any fun. But when we look at the Scripture, there's a completely different picture given. That in the Scripture we find, in fact, that the Lord gives His people an enormous amount of freedom. You recall that as we're looking in uh, Genesis, when God creates the universe and puts man and woman in the garden, one of the things He does is He makes all kinds of plants, all kinds of food. And what does God tell man and woman about that food? He said, you can have whatever you want. There's only one restriction, just this one right here. Don't eat from that. But all this other stuff, you have whatever you want. 
Now, if you look, I don't see that God gave Adam and Eve a daily meal plan of what they had to eat each meal. They could eat whatever they wanted to. If they wanted to eat strawberries today and coli rab tomorrow, I guess they could eat whatever they wanted. Now, that may sound trivial, but I think it's important because sometimes I think that's not the way we think about life. We tend to think that if you're a Christian, every little thing is laid out. But in fact, the Lord gives us a great deal of freedom. Um, But that's freedom under His authority to decide what the boundaries are. And are we going to keep those in mind? Uh, it's interesting, uh, after he, bring, he brings man and he, uh, God has formed all of the animals, and it says God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. It said God watched to see what Adam would call them. Why was he doing that? Was God watching to see if Adam got it right? That's not a giraffe. That's an elephant. No, it said he could call him whatever he wanted to. There was a... uh, When I was in seminary and we were studying Hebrew after the first semester or so of just memorizing paradigms and grammar and stuff like that, we finally started translating. And one of the first passages we translated was Hebrews Hebrews 1 and 2. And we were grinding through this and sweating, and we got through this verse and parsing the verbs and diagramming the grammar, and all of a sudden my instructor, Prof. Cover, said, why on earth did God say that? Truth be told, we weren't even thinking about what God was saying. We were just trying to parse the verbs, you know, so we could pass the test. But he said, why in the world does it say God watched to see what Adam named the animals? And Prof. Cover said, do any of you have little kids? He said, you ever just watch them? I wouldn't pound the pulpit on this, but I think Prof. Cover was on to something. When we look at how God set up the world, he intended for us to have an enormous amount of freedom. It says in there that he intends for us to have dominion over the world. We can make choices. We can do what we want to. We can eat what we want to. As long as we acknowledge his authority to set boundaries, we have all kinds of freedom. We can make all kinds of choices. Um, you know, we tend to think of choices about what car am I going to drive or what kind of where, where do I want to send my kids to school? And I guess that's sort of true, although when I'm working in Papua New Guinea in the village, you know, their kids don't have some of those same choices. My Papua New Guinean friends are not ever going to be choosing what kind of car they want. I've told you before, I don't think any of the Finney translators own a chair. They're never going to be choosing what kind of car they want. Um, <clears throat> but what other kind of choices do we make? Just a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, one of the Finney, one of the Papua New Guinean translators came up to me during break and he said, I'm thinking about leaving my wife. My church says I shouldn't do that. I guess your church probably says that too, doesn't it? You know, we all have choices that we make every day. Maybe we may not get to choose what college we're going to. A kid in a wheelchair might not get to choose to play college basketball. 
Well, what kind of choices do we make? What kind of choices do we make when somebody gets mad and yells at us? Or what kind of choice do we make um, when our brother calls and he's needing some help with something, but I'm wanting to go do something else just for entertainment? What do I do with I'm a bunch of my friends and they all start making fun of me? How am I going to choose to respond to that? How am I going to respond if I'm with a group of my friends and they start making fun of someone else? What am I going to do if I'm at work and I get blamed for something I didn't do? How am I going to choose to respond to that? What if I'm at work and I get credit for something I didn't do? Now, how am I going to respond to that? Every day we have choices. And what we're going to see, and we'll develop this more as we go on, that from God's perspective, maturity is going through life, making the choices that we're confronted with in life in light of what God has said is right or wrong and in light of what God says is a wise way to handle that situation. And within those parameters, we have a great deal of freedom. So that is what we're going to define as maturity, and that will come up more clear as we, as we, go, as we go on. When you think about the book of Proverbs, especially the first few chapters, it's going on and on about having relations with an immoral woman and about using violence to get something you want. But I think really in those first few chapters, those are actually just examples that the writer is using to try to sell us on the idea of what wisdom is. And what wisdom is, is look before you leap. And look from God's perspective as he has revealed to us what's right or wrong and what's wise to evaluate what you're going to do before you do it. So, with that idea of what maturity is from God's perspective, the next question we want to ask is, what's the starting point? Where are we starting from? What is it, in terms of raising children, what is it about little kids that constitutes not being mature? Now, I have to come down here, make an example here. What are little kids like? Little kids are like, I want that. I want it. That's what little kids are like, aren't they? And if my, if my little brother, big brother, if my big brother won't give it to me, what do I do? I whomp in the side of the head and take it. And what if I, <laughs> and what do I do if I can't get what I want? I throw a screaming fit and I make mom and dad and everyone in the room pay for the fact that I didn't get what I wanted. In, in Proverbs, uh, in Proverbs 22, it says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod and training will remove that from them. Well, what does the Bible mean by foolishness? Well, in the scripture, when it talks about foolishness, Foolishness is when I try to indulge my desires, when I try to get what I want without thinking about whether it's right or wrong and not thinking about the consequences. And that's what children are like, isn't it? 
And if children don't grow up, if they simply become adults, but they're not mature and they continue to act like that, the Bible says that person is a fool. That is a person who says, I want what I want, when I want it, I don't care whether it's right or wrong, and I don't care about the consequences of my trying to get it. And the Scripture says that's the starting point with little kids. I recently read what Martin Luther said, that the only reason that we say children are innocent is because they're small and weak. You know that your six-month-old, if they were were six feet tall and weighed 180 pounds, they would tear your throat out if you didn't give them what they wanted in, in 10 seconds. And I only, I'm, I'm serious. That is true. Children are not innocent. They're just small and weak, fortunately. I think God planned it that way. Um, but that's the starting point. And so, in guiding people towards maturity and raising children, what we're wanting to do is move from, I want what I want when I want it, and I don't care about anything else, to... As I go through life, I'm going to enjoy the freedom God has given me within the boundaries He set, and I'm going to make choices according to what God has said is right or wrong and what He considers to be wise and exercise my freedom within those boundaries. That's where we want to go. What I want to say is I want to point out a couple of things that guiding people towards maturity is not. And I had trouble with this starting out in the beginning is apparent. Is number one is guiding others to maturity does not mean me making all the decisions for my kids. And secondly, it doesn't mean programming them like little robots or manipulating them to try to make them make all the same decisions that I would make and same choices that I would make. Our goal is to help move them towards Maturity where they can be an individual and exercise their own freedom under the authority and guidance of the Lord, not just be a little carbon copy of me. All right, so with that in mind, how do we do that? What we want to do is I'm going to talk about the process, and most of you can probably quote Ephesians 6. Four. Uh, I have several versions mixed up in my head, so I don't know how it will come out of my mouth. But uh, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I don't even know what version that is. It might be the Gibson Discordant version. Um, I'm going to talk about the process in two separate ways, about instruction and discipline. Uh, full disclosure here, I think that's the way New American Standard and also the ESV defines those two words, the, the two Greek words, paideia and, and nuthesia. I think actually Paul is using very, fairly synonymously. I don't, I don't really think you can push that too far, the differences in those two words. But I, I, I think you'll see this legitimate. I'm going to talk about two separate areas, is, is instruction and then discipline. I'll explain what I mean by discipline. Instruction has to do with basically teaching kids... What's right and wrong and what's, what's smart and what's dumb, basically, about life? I want to read um, what I'm sure is a familiar passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the, the great Shema, what's called the great Shema in, um, in Jewish society. Shema just means listen or hear. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words, which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You'll bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The first part of uh, guiding children towards maturity has to do with instruction or basically teaching. And that's probably the most straightforward one that we'll talk about. We're going to teach our kids. But there are three things that I want to point out here about that. And from this passage, number one is, what are we going to teach our kids? Well, in this passage, obviously the context is the Scripture. What we're going to teach our kids is what God says about life, about what, he's, about what God says about who He is, what we are, and how life works. That may sound straightforward, but I'd like to give, our, give us a challenge. That if we want to teach young people or anyone else the Scripture, the first thing we want to be sure is that we actually know what the Scripture says. And not just pass on whatever we think the Scripture says, that came from whatever our background or whatever our culture or whatever little Christian subculture we come from, we want to make sure that what we're teaching is actually from the Scripture. We'll tell a story about something that happened uh, when we hadn't been in Papua New Guinea very long and living in the village. There was a young man that had heard that there was a widow that had said some unflattering things about his clan. She said some things about how they didn't work very hard and their gardens weren't very good. I'm talking about food gardens, not flowers here. Uh, that's, that's pretty strong talk in Papua New Guinea. Well, this young man went and got two of his brothers, and they were all in their 20s, I think, and they went and they beat the living daylights out of that old widow. So bad she could hardly get around for several days. To try to get a picture in your mind, I was <laughs> trying to imagine if you, get, if you just picture... Three of the Fortney boys going and beating Ruby till she couldn't stand up. That's what happened. Well, a few weeks later, there was a court case about that. They sent those three boys um, to a, I say, nearby town. It was seven, about 50 miles away, and they had to walk. But anyway, they went to court, and the judge said, "Oh, something, nothing. Just sent them home." So they came on back, and this young man came to me, and he said the fact that the judge had dismissed the case vindicated the fact that he had done exactly what God wanted him to do. Because obviously any real man, that's what you do when someone slanders your clan, is you go beat them up. And he was convinced that that's what the Bible said you should do. There's a warning I'd like to give us here. And there's something that's uh, it's easier to see when it happens in another culture. And Carrie and I now have lived in other cultures and then come back. And it's easier to see other cultures do it than it is to recognize when it happens in our own. And that is, I think, a lot of times when people become Christians, what they think a good Christian is is just an ideal version of whatever, whatever their culture tells them an ideal man is. And I can tell that story about Papua New Guinea, and you're all shocked. 
but I could tell the stories about the same kind of misconceptions that we have about what the ideal Christian is compared to what our culture says. And it may not be as obvious or easy for us to recognize. There are a lot of things in the Scripture that are different from what our culture would say. I'm going to give a challenge. Um, I mentioned that I gave this sermon six years ago, and I used the same example, and I didn't get any pushback, so I'm going to risk using it again. Um, You're aware that in the Scripture there's quite a bit about church discipline. Uh, Both Jesus and then his apostles talk about the fact that if people are involved in continuous sin and, and you've tried to talk to them, tried to correct them, the church has worked with them and they refuse to respond and repent of that, that it can reach a situation where Jesus himself said it's time to put them out of the fellowship. That's not popular in the U.S. today, but it's in there. Most of the places that it talks about that, it just says sin. It doesn't specify particular ones. But there are a few places where the Lord actually specifies certain kinds of behavior that he says if people continue in that and they won't respond to the church's effort to help them turn away from that, that's serious enough that you need to put them out of the fellowship. Do you know what those things are? It's really quite sobering and shocking to me to see what those things are. And, uh, and I'm afraid it's very convicting <laughs> for me. Um, I think a lot of Americans that don't familiar with the Scripture would be shocked which, what those things are. It's not smoking and drinking, or it's not, it's not um, um, my mind just, you ever get a blue screen? <laughs> you know, It's not just smoking and chewing, and it's not voting for the wrong political party. If you actually look at the things that the Lord specifically names, there are things that most of us in our society would just kind of roll our eyes and think, well, that's no big deal. It's not that, but the Lord it is. We need to let the Lord tell us what's important and what He thinks is a big deal. So we're going to teach the Scripture, but we teach what? We're going to teach what the Lord says. Teach when. In this passage, when does it say to teach? It says, well, when you rise up and when you lie down, when you go out and when you come in. We use the same kind of expressions, top to bottom, A to Z, front to back. It's just all inclusive, right? It's just saying teach all the time. Well, that relates to the third thing we want to talk about is how do we teach? Well, one way we teach, obviously, is just formal teaching. We have Sunday school and Awana, or we sit down with our kids and we just teach them. Somehow, for a long time, I thought Jesus never really did that. And then I realized, well, actually, the Sermon on the Mount is one great big long lecture. Jesus did do that. Um, And there's a place for that. But in this passage, it talks about teaching all the time. And we're not in Sunday school or Awana all the time. How do we teach all the time? Well, I think by teaching all the time is we're simply going through life with our children and just helping them think through life as situations come up, either helping them process through a choice they're going to make or helping them deal with the aftermath of choices they've already made, good or bad, processing through that. We're we're just talking about what things go on. When I gave this sermon six years ago, my oldest son and his wife were here, and I asked him if I could tell this story. When he was in about the ninth grade, 
uh, one of his classmates had done something, and I don't remember for sure. I think what he had done is hit his girlfriend. I think it's what had happened. And David came home that evening really upset, and he was stewing around about it. And at some point he said, I think tomorrow I'm just going to pound that guy in the ground. Well, I kind of had mixed emotions. I felt a little bit proud because I thought, well, yeah, I think David probably could beat that other kid up, you know. My kid could beat up his kid. But we talked about it, and I said, well, yeah, I, I think you probably could beat him up. But what would that accomplish? And he said, well, maybe he won't do it again, and I'd feel better. And we talked about it a little bit, and I said, yeah, you, you could do that. So we talked about pros and cons, and I said, you know, David, I said, I can't handcuff you to your bed and keep you from going to school tomorrow, and I can't follow you around all day telling you what to do and keep you from doing something. So I said, you've got a choice to make about what you're going to do. And he said, yeah, I know. He said, I'm I'm not really going to beat the kid up. He said, I just feel like I'd like to. Well, that was a situation where just life comes up, doesn't it? And we can talk about, what are your options? And sometimes we can help our kids make choices. It may not even be the choice they feel like, but it's the choice that they think, you know, in God's eyes, in God's wisdom, that's not the route to go. And those are the kind of things that we can help with. You know, there's all kinds of situations that come up, but we can also help our kids even sort of creating situations, learning situations. Again, we were in Papua New Guinea, so things were a lot different culturally in the way the society was set up. So we had to think of ways to help our kids so they'd be ready to come back to America and and live here. One of the things we did was we gave our kids a pretty big allowance, even when they were quite young. Um, And we gave them a pretty big allowance, and they just got a big lump sum about once a month. And it was a big enough sum that it kind of attracted attention from some of their friends. We were, part of the time we were in the village, but part of the time we were in this mission community where it was like a fishbowl and everybody was up in everybody's business, you know. And so other kids knew what our kids got for their allowance, and they complained to their parents, you know, well, the Gibsons get so much, how come we don't get so much? But what we did with our kids is they got a lump sum uh, once a month. But we made them responsible for certain things. There were a lot of things, either fun things with their friends or getting snacks at the store or even we made them responsible for their own clothes. There were a lot of things that it was up to them to take care of. But what would happen is if four days after they got their money, all the money was gone and their bedroom floor was covered with empty candy wrappers, and then the next week... There was a school trip somewhere and there was a fee or their friends wanted to go to Garoka and get a hamburger. Sorry. If if one of our kids, this was 20 years ago, if one of our kids wanted to pay $100 for a pair of blue jeans, well, they could do that. They may not have any socks for three months, but they could do that if they wanted to. And the point is what we were wanting to help them with is learn that they have some freedom within certain limits. But once they've made a choice, they need to live with that choice. Now, 
one caution here. I'm not telling anybody else to handle finances and their kids that way. I'm just using this as an example of the principle. It's what we did. Every family is different. You do what you want to do. But I think the principle is valid. It's what we want to do is help kids learn to make decisions and then live with the decisions that they make. So, <clears throat> I think the main way we teach, so we've talked about formal teaching and then just talking about processing life. I think the main way we teach, though, is by example. Kids watch us make choices and respond to things that come up in life. Where this really sunk in to me was when our oldest was only about five years old. I took him to work with me for some reason. I was able to do that or I was working. And about halfway through my work, there was a customer came in that was irate. He was very angry about something that had happened. And he was yelling at me and he was cussing. And in the corner of my eye, I saw David, little David. And he was watching. But he wasn't watching the guy that was yelling at me. He was watching me. He was watching, what is dad going to do? What do you do when somebody gets mad and is yelling at you and cussing at you? Do you yell and cuss back at them? Do you try to blame someone else? Do you throw your coworker under the bus and say, well, it was his fault? Do you cower in fear and just let the person do whatever he wants to and give him whatever he wants, whether it's right or wrong? What do you do in that situation? There were several times after that when it would really stand out to me that when things would happen in our family, especially if it was something kind of scary, I would realize the kids were watching us. They were watching, what's dad going to do? What's mom going to do? What, what do you do when you get falsely accused of something? How do you respond? What happens when you get caught and you did do something wrong? How do you respond? Kids are watching us. You know, I, uh, I've told several of you before, it took 22 years of parenting for me to come up with about four or five illustrations in this sermon where I look good. And I've got hundreds where I drop the ball. <clears throat> fortunately, <laughs> God's gracious. And uh, fortunately, my kids are gracious. But the kids are watching us, and that's mainly how we teach. I think a lot of times we can see that. You know, you see a lot of times, you see kids, and you realize, well, they're a lot like their parents, you know, in personality. Um, parents are excitable. The kids are kind of excitable. One thing that I want to make a correction of, when I listened to the sermon that I did six years ago, I was quite horrified that I... I made it sound much more than I really thought that whatever you're like, your children are going to be like that. And I realized there's sort of that tendency, but our kids, they're individuals too, right? And they make their own choices, plus the fact, that's an amazing thing about children. They are so different, aren't they? We've got, we've got seven grandkids now, and they're the whole range. Anybody that has, has had two children know they're not alike. 
And probably if you've got four or five children, some of them you recognize, but the Lord gave you one wild card. And you think, where did this come from? You know, we're all bookworms, and he's just nothing but sports. You know, we're individuals, and that's all right, and we can rejoice in that. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting that in Proverbs, I had to write down because I don't remember the in Proverbs 20, it talks about the fact that even a youth is known by his deeds, by his behavior. Even a youth. Even the young people, we don't have complete control over what they do. We're going to do what we can as parents. But even children, at some point, they're responsible for what they do. I'm going to take a moment to tell a story about one of my best friends uh, was confiding in me a struggle he's having with his son. And uh, his son was just really a troublemaker. Uh, he, he really was in high school. And something came up at school where his son felt like he had been falsely accused of something. And he came to his dad and he wanted his dad to go up to the school and defend him. And I know it just broke my friend's heart to have to tell his son. He said, son, I would love nothing better than to be able to go up there to the school and go to bat for you. But son, you got to give me something to work with. Because his life up to that point had just been one rebellious act after another. And he said, son, how can you expect me or anyone else to give you the benefit of the doubt when 99% of the time you get blamed for stuff? You are guilty. You did do it. So that's actually kind of letting us parents off the hook to remember that every time our kids make a poor choice, it doesn't mean we failed. It means they're individuals and they make poor choices occasionally, just like you and I do. We'll come to that later. All right. That's teaching, teaching our kids what's right and how to handle things. Now, the next thing that comes up is what do we do when our kids do something wrong? This is going to be the discipline part, the discipline or correction. What do we do when our kids get off track? Um, I'm going to read from Hebrews 12. And in Hebrews, he's quoting from Proverbs, which we've already referred to. But in Hebrews 12, the writer says, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. Okay, you've done something wrong and God's correcting you. Don't faint over that. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And he goes on down and says, verse 10, For our our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's talk about discipline here because I think that most of us in our culture, when we hear the word discipline in the context of parenting, we think in terms of punishment. Okay, the kid did something wrong, so you punish them. You spank them or time out or take away their iPad or whatever it is you do. 
You do something, it's punishment. But I would say that that's a very deficient view of what the Scripture's talking about here. What the Scripture's talking about here is how do we work with our kids when they do something wrong to help them get back on track? It's not talking about necessarily punishing them. Now, we may do something and give them some consequences, but the point isn't punishment. The point is we're helping get them back on track. And it's going to talk some about uh, about how we do that. How do we do that? What should we do with our children or anyone else when they've done something wrong? Well, I would say the obvious place to start in answering that question is to look at what does God do with us when we do something wrong? We don't have to go far look. You just go to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned. They did wrong. What did God do? Chapter 4, Cain. Cain did wrong. What did God do? The Bible goes on and on. Saul and his rebellion and disobedience and usurping what God had told him to do. King David, his um, adultery and murder. What did God do with King David? Jonah disobeyed and ran away. What did God do? The Samaritan woman at the well. What did God do? Peter, his arrogance. They might run away. I never will. He lied three times. What did God do with Peter? This needs to be our model. What does God do with people who sin against Him? This could be a whole sermon series here. And in fact, when, when Terry first asked me about filling in this, sun, this Sunday, that's what I had planned to do. I actually even sent him a sermon title. I was just going to look at what does God do when we sin? How does He respond? I decided I want to do this whole thing here. What does God do? I can summarize all of those together. What does God do? Is God tries to guide people into acknowledging that they have done wrong in accepting responsibility for having sinned. And then He guides them through what they need to do to try to restore the damage that they've done to the degree that they can in writing relationships and restitution. What God does with us when we do wrong is desire to guide us into confessing and admitting and accepting responsibility and then guiding us through the steps of restoration to the degree that we can do that. And we want to look at that because that's what the Lord is wanting us to do with our kids or with adults who are foolish. And we're trying to guide them towards maturity and what we need to talk to ourselves about when we're being immature. I have a story about uh, when our second son, Levi, was only about four or five years old. He was down the street playing with his friend Mikey and Mikey's dad. They were a sweet family down the street. Uh, a little while later, Levi came running home a lot sooner than I expected him, and he seemed kind of upset. I said, what's going on? And he said, well, we, Mike and I were playing, and Mikey's dad did so-and-so and so-and-so, and so I spit on him and ran away. No. Oh. You know. 
become a parent and you learn to be humbled by your children's <laughs> behavior, you know. So, what are we going to do? Well, I could just harangue him and beat him or something. That's not any use, is it? I talked to Levi for a while, and he, even as a four or five-year-old, he said, you know, I, yeah, I, sh- I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. And I said, well, you're going to need to go down there. <laughs> you're going to need to talk to Mikey's dad. Well, he was... He was pretty scared. You know, Levi's about four or five years old. Mikey's dad is about eight feet tall. And uh, I was afraid of Mikey's dad. He was, a, I mean, he was a big guy. And so I told Levi, I said, okay, I'll go with you. So he went down the street, knocked on the door, and Mikey's dad came to the door. Now, this was a deal that I couldn't have scripted it better. It worked so well because Mikey's dad was a great guy. Very accepting of Levi's apology, but also Mikey, uh, Mikey's dad apologized to Levi because, in fact, Mikey's dad was also about six years old and acted like that, and he'd just been harassing and goading Levi till uh, it would have aggravated me what all he was doing. Now, that doesn't excuse what Levi did, but it worked out well because both of them, they were dealing with what had happened that was wrong, and they were re- reconciling what happened. And in guiding young people to maturity, when they've done something wrong, that's what the Lord wants us to do with them, is help them learn, not hide, not make excuses, not blame someone else, but just man up and say, yes, I did that. And now guide them through how to restore any damage that's been done. That's what the Lord does with us. We'll get into more detail about that a little bit. There is a warning here I want to make about that. Um, we really need to distinguish, be sure, and I, to my shame, this is one of my biggest errors a long time as, as a parent. Even though I knew the difference in my head, it didn't come out in my action. Is There's a difference between my kids actually sinning and simply just making a mistake and breaking my drill bits. But you know, it's really easy for us in day-to-day life to just simply get mad and lash out at our kids and care more about the fact that they ran over the hose with a lawnmower. It's just an accident. That's not the same thing as sinning. And when we just ride and harangue our kids about just mistakes and get to where they either resent us or they're scared to death to try anything. That's me, but that's just me personally. I don't think my parents did that to me. I'm just kind of a little rabbit kind of a guy. I'm always afraid to try things. But even if it's just a mistake and not sin, it's still the same thing, isn't it? Can't we help our kids learn that, hey, if you just make a mistake, it's not the end of the world. You don't have to go to your room and cry and be afraid to come out. Just say, okay, I made a mistake. Now let's go and let's find out how to fix this thing you broke. Um, again, we just help them learn how do you deal with failure. That's kind of a separate category. I'll mention this aside. There's almost nothing in the Bible about that. The Bible mainly deals with sin. There's one extended passage that does, I think, deal with that, and that's Ecclesiastes in kind of a sideways sort of way. I'll send you there if you have any questions you can ask me about, about just Mistakes and things in life don't work out right. So what our goal is, is we want to help guide 
our children into what we want to do is not just harangue them and humiliate them when they've done something wrong, but we want to help them learn how to deal with error and sin God's way so that there's restoration. All right. The Bible does talk about some errors that we need to avoid. If we're trying to help guide people to maturity, whether it's our children or friends or whether we're even counseling a co-worker that's wanting to leave his wife um, or counseling in the council room, there are certain pitfalls that we want to avoid. And I'm going to mention a couple of them that are talked about in the Scripture. Uh, And there are kind of two extremes here. One is just being too hard or inappropriately hard on people when they've done something wrong. And the other extreme is simply not doing anything, just simply ignoring the fact that they've done wrong. And we're going to look at both of those errors. I have a lot of experience with both. Um, The first one being too severe. In that Ephesians 6.4, it says, um, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The parallel passage in Colossians, my English translation says, don't. Uh, now I forgot what the NASB says. Um, not frustrate. Uh, exasperate. Do not exasperate your children. The meaning of those two words are actually pretty similar. Don't provoke your children to anger. Okay, you and I, we all know that if you're raising children, they're going to get mad at you a lot. And just because they're mad doesn't mean you did something wrong. For some moms, it's hard. Oh, my child's not happy with me. I need to give them something to make them happy. Okay, just because they're mad at you doesn't mean that you did something wrong. But maybe you did. (laughs) It is possible for us to provoke our children. Now, in that passage in Ephesians, it doesn't appear to say straight out what Paul is thinking about. What kind of action is he thinking about that would provoke our children to anger? or would exasperate them in Colossians. But I think actually, if we come in the back door, there's a hint about what he's talking about. He says, don't provoke your children to anger, but do what? Someone finish the verse. Rather, raise the children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if you realize there's a contrast, and I think what Paul is saying is don't provoke and aggravate and frustrate and exasperate your children. Instead, raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I think what Paul is saying is if you try to raise them some other way, you will provoke and exasperate them. You need to raise them the way the Lord wants you to raise them. Now, some kids are still going to rebel. They're going to rebel against you and against the Lord. But at least as far as our part, the Lord is saying you need to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And what are those things? Well, we've already talked about them. And I um, and there's two particular areas that I want to suggest that we need to, to focus on. Um, one is that if we think correcting our children means haranguing and harassing and humiliating them, especially in public in front of other people, that's not raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Simply humiliating them when they do wrong. Um, I have a particular picture in my mind, and I confess I've done this a lot 
I, I, there are a lot of scenes I had with my kids that I wish I could erase. But I have a scene with another family where one of their teenage kids had done something wrong, and this boy's mother just went on this lengthy harangue against him verbally in front of other people, raising Cain and humiliating him, and then left it and never did anything else. Never did anything to help him acknowledge and confess and guide him into restoration. And I think one way we can be too hard on people is thinking our job is to punish people rather than help them towards restoration because that's what it's God's job is. God is going to handle any punishment that needs to take place. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't give reinforcement. I've already mentioned Carrie and I spanked and we spank our grandkids. But our goal is not punishment. All right. There's another way that I think that is actually... I think the biggest thing we need to think about for us in our culture, that I think one of the ways we can frustrate and exasperate and provoke our children to anger, and that is when we try to make every single little decision for them and we don't allow them any freedom at all, because that's not what maturity is. The whole point of maturity is that's why we started with what maturity is, is God allowing us to be individuals and exercising our freedom and the creation he's given us within the parameters and in submission to him and the guidance he's given us and his wisdom and thankfully um, using what he's given us. And I think that when we try, when we think parenting is making all of our children's decisions for them, and just getting all bent out of shape when they won't do every little thing the way we want them to do it, <clears throat> that that's going to be a problem. Uh, when David was in the ninth grade, just before we came back to the U.S. for furlough, we were, we were in Papua New Guinea, and, uh, and David came home from school today and said, Mom, Dad, I want to get an earring. And uh, I was trying to catch my breath, and, and uh, Carrie stayed calm. And, and Carrie said, well, why do you want an earring? And he talked about that a little bit. And Carrie said, uh, well, we're about to go back to the U.S. for a year for furlough. And, you know, having an earring doesn't say the same thing in America that an earring in Papua New Guinea says, which is true. And I've told Carrie if we had stayed in Papua New Guinea, I would probably have an earring, but I don't want to have one here particularly. Um, but it was interesting what happened. We got done with that discussion, and uh, and David said, Well, I, I don't actually want an earring. I was just wondering what you guys would say. He was just testing us. And he talked to us about that a little while, and he said, he said, You know, there's some of my friends that are just always chafing under their parents, and they're just feeling rebellious and, and always testing the limits. And he said, I think part of the reason is because they're just, they live in a straitjacket. Their, their parents won't give them room to breathe and they get so tired of it that they just do something. He said, some of my friends, the only reason they got an earring is because they knew it would torque their parents off. Now that doesn't justify it. And again, you can be a perfect parent and some kids are still going to rebel. God's a perfect parent, and Adam and Eve rebelled against him, and God was a perfect parent to Israel, and they rebelled against him also. And so I'm not trying to put anyone on a guilt trip here that if your child rebels, it means you didn't do it right. 
But we just need to be sure that we as parents are not making life hard for our kids. It's not any easier for them to submit to authority than it is for you and me. So let's not make life harder for them than it needs to be. Let's try to give them the freedom that God gives us. I'm going to tell another story about uh, some years ago, Carrie and I had some friends that were uh, a few years older than us, and their, their children were grown and married. And one of their sons and, his, and their daughter-in-law had bought a house, and they had uh, put new drawer pulls and cabinet uh, knobs on their kitchen cabinets. And these friends of ours were complaining to us and saying, our kids just won't listen to us and they won't take our advice. We told them if they got knobs like that, it was going to snag on their pockets and to tail their pockets and that's the kind they got and they wouldn't listen to us. And that was a strain on their relationship. And they were older than us and and I'm kind of a non-confrontational guy and you know, I didn't say anything to them about it, but Karen and I talked about it later. And, and, and I want to challenge all of us in this room. If you have adult married children and you're trying to tell them what kind of pulls to put on their cabinets, you're out of line. God didn't tell you what kind of pulls to put on your cabinet. He said, you can put whatever kind you want. You're free to. You're my children. I'm just going to watch. Watch, see what you call the animals. Put whatever you want on there. But sometimes with our kids, we just... And it doesn't count to roll your eyes and say, well, put whatever you want to on there. That doesn't count. We need to let our kids know it's their life. We need to let them enjoy that freedom and enjoy seeing our kids be different from us. Well, there's another extreme we can go to. One is being too hard. The other is being too lax, and that's simply not doing anything. There are actually biblical examples in there. The Lord chastises Eli because he doesn't deal with his sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, That's even after they were adults. Partly that overlaps into him being a priest, but still, as uh, as a parent... The Lord doesn't so much challenge Eli on what his kids did, but the fact that Eli did not address the issue. Um, there's an amazing passage in 1 Kings chapter 1 where the writer is telling us about King David's son Adonijah. Just before he tells a story about Adonijah trying to usurp his father's throne and take the kingdom away, just stuck in there. You know what the verse says? It says, that when Adonijah was a youngster, his father never crossed him. Why are you doing that? Isn't that amazing that the Lord put in there? As one of my profs in seminary said, Adonijah was the village brat. He did whatever he wanted to. And he grew up to be a lawless, dangerous man. i tell a story about uh, when, uh, again, it was Levi... When he was in about the seventh grade, he uh, <clears throat> he was doing very poorly in uh, in his history class. And his history teacher was trying and trying and trying to get Levi to do his schoolwork and do a better job. And she tried all kinds of things to muscle and manipulate him into doing his work, and he wouldn't do it. And he got to where he was coming home and telling us 
what all the teacher was doing. And, and I decided to get involved when Levi came home and said that the, the teacher was telling Levi that she thought that he had emotional and psychological problems and he needed to go get counseling because he wasn't doing any good and he was unmotivated and wasn't doing good in history. And personally, I thought Levi was just lazy. Um, so anyway, I, I checked with the teacher and I asked her if we could meet together. And, and, and decide what to do about Levi. And she said, yeah, that'd be good. And I said, if it's all right, we'll get the assistant principal to meet with us too. I just wanted three people to be there, you know, a third person to hear what's going on. Also, the assistant principal was a friend of ours. This was when we were in, in Papua New Guinea, and, and the assistant principal was a friend of mine and a fellow Texan. So anyway, we had that meeting, and we talked about what all was going on and what all she was trying to do to to get Levi to do his work, and, and I said that I didn't think that was really necessary. And, and she was trying to come up with all kinds of alternative forms of evaluation, and you school teachers will know what some of those things were. I don't know. And I, finally she said, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, what I would like for you to do is nothing. What I would like for you to do is teach your class and give your homework, give your assignments, and if Levi doesn't do it, Give him a zero. And if he does a crummy job, give him an F. And she looked at me like I was from Mars. And she said, well, all right, I'll try that. I actually told her, and Levi knows I told her this, that I said, Levi's kind of like a dairy cow. And I said, I don't know if you've ever milked a cow, but if you try to lean on a dairy cow, she's going to lean back. And you cannot out-lean a dairy cow. And I said, you cannot out-lean Levi. I said, he's quiet, but you cannot bully Levi into doing anything. Just teach your class. Well, his grades immediately came up, and he did all right. And Levi actually eventually got to where he liked school, not until after he finished high school, but he actually liked school and went to college and even went to graduate school. So he did all right. But the point is, there are times when we just need to let our kids make their choices and let them fail. One of the things that this teacher had said, and she was a very nice lady, and I give, she helped our family a lot. She really cared about Levi, and we really appreciated that, and we let her know. Um, and we let her know that. And she said, I just don't want Levi to fail. And I said, well, you know what? Failing history in the seventh grade is not the biggest thing in the world. You know, there, there, there are more important things, so I'm not worried about it. Um, one thing that we don't want to do with our kids and being lax is do nothing, or even worse, is remove the consequences of poor choices that they make. About four days after I had that meeting with Levi's teacher, I ran into the vice principal in the street. We were over there, and we ran into each other, and we were friends. And he came over to me and said, David, I want to talk to you about that meeting. He said, you know how many parents we come in here for parent-teacher conferences? They come in here and say, let my child fail. He said, that never happens. He said, I had a mom in here just last week in here making excuses for why her son was late to school every single day just because he couldn't get out of bed early enough and she was trying to make excuses for him so he wouldn't get counted off. He said, I have a constant parade of parents coming in here, making excuses for their kids' poor choices and trying to bail them out. <clears throat> what I want to suggest is 
that when we've got our little kids and they do something wrong and and we spank them or put them in timeout or whatever it is you do, when we give them consequences for that choice, that's not artificial. What's artificial is when we remove consequences for poor choices because that's not what real life is like. If you climb up on the roof and fall off, you're going to get hurt. If you drive, if you speed at night in the rain when you've been drinking, it's going to come back to bite you. Your choices have consequences. And we don't help our kids when we run around behind them, cleaning up behind them. You know, we, and I know you do too, we see a lot of sad circumstances where we see no matter how many cars kids wreck, Uh, No matter how many times they flunk out of school, no matter how many speeding tickets they get, no matter how many times they spend their whole semester's worth of school money in three weeks, mom and dad are constantly cleaning up all the consequences and bail them out with the idea that, oh, I love them and I'm going to give them another chance. But when we remove consequences, we're not doing what God does. We're not helping our kids. We are setting them up for failure. What God wants us, wants us to do is help guide them through admitting. Guide them through admitting, I was wrong. I messed up. And now, son, daughter, we're going to help you. Now we're going to help you work through cleaning this up. There may be consequences. It, it may take two semesters to make up for all those four Fs. We'll help you work through it. That's what the Lord wants us to do. <clears throat> It may be apparent at this point that all of what we're talking about in guiding people towards maturity is that really what we're talking about is living out the gospel, isn't it? What is the good news? Gospel is just an old English word. It just means good news. What is the good news about Jesus Christ? The good news is that even though all of us have sinned and rebelled against God, all of us have done wrong, The good news is God is our loving Father. He desires to guide us to being willing to admit and confess to Him that we've sinned and repent. And He is going to guide us through what He has done to restore our relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. That's taken care of. The punishment is taken care of. God says, the punishment for all your goof-ups has been taken care of. If you'll just admit, just admit it, that you're wrong, and you need my help, and I will help you. And the Lord does that, and He will guide us through restoring broken relationships with Him, with other people, and He will guide us in His wisdom. And that's ultimately what we want to do, isn't it? whether it's with our kids or in the counseling room or just visiting with friends over the back fence or counseling another translator who's wanting to leave his wife or a friend I've got right now who's he's got one baby by a former girlfriend. He's about to move in with his other girlfriend, and he's talking to me about reading his Bible and going to church, and I just asked him, why? How can I guide him to not just rules but humbling himself before the Lord admitting what he's done that's wrong, and letting God restore those relationships. That's what guiding people towards maturity is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and mercy. 
Lord, we thank you that you give us um, life through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you forgive and restore us to a relationship with you. We thank you that you give us the opportunity to guide others through that same process in whatever form, whether it's small children who just simply take a toy from their, from their sibling, or as people become older and teenagers and young adults and, and old people. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of reconciliation that you've given us, that we can share with others. We pray that you would give us wisdom in doing that. Most of all, Lord, that you would give us an attitude of grace in helping people who have sinned in the way that we have. We thank you for that, Lord, and thank you for the grace that you've given us in your Son's name. Amen.